thank you so much, Chris, and all of you. You're doing a great job. Marvelous, marvelous. Let me invite your attention to the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus, a book that one, uh, one uh, commentator calls the most important book in the Bible. Now, I don't like saying one book is more important than the other when it comes to the Bible, but I do appreciate the sentiment and the contribution that it has made. As you're turning there, let me say just a couple of introductory uh, items here, uh, if you will. Uh, do all you can to double your number by next Wednesday. Invite somebody, invite another family. And if they've got children, they don't need to be in here, of course. They can be other places in the building, but, uh, or they can be in here. That's perfectly fine. We don't mind that. But um, uh, do what you can. Get someone here from your Sunday school class. Get someone here from your neighborhood. I'd like to see our numbers grow this spring. Uh, the second thing is, I've gotten some comments uh, back from some of our folks that this is a lot of material every Wednesday night. Well, here's my motto. Here's what I want to say to you. I want to say to you what the Lord told Israel in Psalms 81, verse 10. Here's my motto. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. All right? So just get ready. All right? That's how it is. And uh, you'll notice there, there's a method to my madness. There's a reason we're doing that. You're a sharp crowd. You're an intelligent crowd. And what will happen is that you'll live on it during the week. And we're providing notes for you so you can review those in case you miss something. We had a uh, theology professor at Southwestern uh, when I was there uh, who uh, was there when I was a student and there uh, when, when I taught there. Uh, that uh, was uh, Dr. Leo Garrett. He just recently passed away and uh, had a lot of wonderful interactions with Dr. Garrett uh, there, my last time there at Southwestern. But uh, in any case, uh, they nicknamed him Machine Gun Garrett. And uh, they said, if you happen to drop your pencil in class, you'd miss half the semester, all right? So we have uh, given you notes as far as that's concerned to help you uh, with that, all right? Uh, the final thing I'll say by way of introduction, uh, or preliminary comments, that is, is I want you to begin thinking about Easter. What can you do to double the contribution of your family to our numbers on Easter? Uh, if there are four people in your family, what can you do to get another family here of at least four other people to make you eight? If, if, you're, if you're a single individual, what can you do to get another person here? Uh, in other words, what can you do to get someone here for that day? We want to bust the roof and bust through the roof with our numbers and both of our services on that day. And we'll be giving you some more information as time goes on. It's a natural high day, but if we press it, I believe we can glorify God by getting a remarkable number here. Now, I want to uh, begin this evening with an illustration uh, from a lady who had some brake trouble with her vehicle, and she took the car to the mechanic. Uh, she uh, had a friend pick her up and bring her back when the car should be ready, and she went in to talk with the mechanic. He said, listen, I'm sorry. I've got some bad news and good news. Uh, the bad news is, as I was not able to repair your brakes, the good news is I made your horn louder. Well, the truth is, is uh, uh, we, can, uh, uh, we may appreciate a, a horn that's a little bit louder than it was before, but ladies and gentlemen, that is no substitute for a good brake system. In the Christian church and in the religions of the world, there are always alternatives offered for God's way of salvation. The uh, people of the earth are constantly inventing alternative ways of salvation. And I would say to you, though it's not deliberate, that happens even in the Bible-believing churches. I cannot tell you in how many Southern Baptists 
I have talked with and run into who believe that by accepting Jesus into their heart that their baptism will save them. That's right. Jesus is in their heart, so their baptism saves them. Now, both accepting Jesus into your heart is entirely biblical, but we talked about Sunday how it's incomplete. You need to have a clear view and understanding of our depravity and our desperate guilt before God, and you need to have an explicit, singular faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as His uh, way of paying for our sins and making us right with God, and we only place faith in the death and resurrection of Christ. In that case, accepting Jesus into your heart is adequate and sufficient, but listen to me, without the understanding of human guilt and God's remedy with the cross and resurrection, accepting Jesus into your heart is incomplete because it's not based upon an entire biblical understanding of the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. Baptism is entirely biblical, but it comes after salvation. <clears throat> Excuse me. It is not the way to salvation. So what I want to say to you is this. Uh, on one hand, I, nearly all of the historic Protestant denominations have in large part abandoned biblical authority and even the need for salvation. You'll never find any preaching about hell, and you'll never find preaching about the blood, never find preaching about the resurrection of Christ or God's call to repentance because it's not necessary. God doesn't send anyone to hell, they say. In other words, if you're a nice person, or even if you're not, truth is, there's not much to worry about on the other side of the grave and the death experience. That is nearly all of Protestant Christianity. There's some remarkable exceptions among our Methodist friends. There's some exceptions among our Presbyterian friends. There's some exceptions among our Anglican friends in England and our Episcopalian friends here. But for the most part, they abandoned biblical authority about 100 years ago. That is Protestant Christianity. Biblical Christianity, while it may be biblical, has gotten rather sloppy on the doctrine of salvation, as I noted earlier. Now, probably over the next couple of weeks on Sunday mornings, I'm going to point some of these things out on Sunday morning and um, uh, some of the alternative approaches that biblical churches surface by default, by accident, inadvertently, when they're not explicit about the, uh, about, uh, the biblical approach to salvation. Leviticus is going to cure every bit of that. It's going to cure every bit of that. I want to look at the key concept in Leviticus uh, to begin with in your outline in your notes tonight. In Leviticus 17, 11, the Lord said, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. That dominates the content of Leviticus from the first chapter to the 27th chapter to the end of the book of Leviticus. Now the key thought here is, is that Exodus, the book previous to Leviticus, created a need. It ends with 15 chapters on worship in the tabernacle. So there's a need there uh, to answer the question, what in the world did we do with the tabernacle now that we've got it? What are we going to do with the tabernacle? So Exodus creates a need. Leviticus answers it. Leviticus is the manual of how to approach God in the tabernacle and how to walk with God from the tabernacle. So the need is in Exodus. The 
uh, provision and supply is in the book of Leviticus. Jerry Vines put it this way. Exodus is a book of deliverance. Leviticus is a book of dedication. Exodus tells us the way out. Leviticus tells us the way in. Exodus tells us God's approach to us. Leviticus tells us our approach to God. So in Exodus, the tabernacle becomes the center of Israel's life. And in Leviticus, God instructs priests and people on how to approach Him and walk with Him uh, by the ceremony of the tabernacle. Now the key content in Leviticus is this. Unapologetically and unflinchingly, the book of Leviticus is God-centered. It is intent on satisfying Almighty God, following His dictates and commands. There are multiplied, almost countless numbers of commands in the book of Leviticus, some that some people have actually choked on through the years. And even in chapter 10, some of Aaron's sons in the priesthood choked on them and suffered a horrible penalty for it. So in the tabernacle, God promised to embrace and accompany Israel if Israel um, embraced and walked in his statutes in his way. There is no concern in the book of Leviticus to being making God palatable to ancient cultures or even contemporary ones. Now here's the, here are the key contributions of the book of Leviticus, or if I were preaching a sermon on this, I would, I would entitle it, Why We Should Love the Book of Leviticus. Ten quick reasons. Number one, Leviticus records direct quotations from God 56 times. Second, it sets up the New Testament, especially the book of Hebrews, and Leviticus is quoted 100 times in the New Testament. Number three, Leviticus placed Israel under constant surveillance before the world because of its ceremonies and its unique practices. And so they would look at Israel and they would see on display the content of Leviticus, which we'll learn later what it pointed to before the world. Number four, Leviticus guided former slaves. You may look at some of the laws in Leviticus and say, well, of course, that's what you do. Or why would you do that? Well, the reason is, is that they had someone doing all their thinking for them when they were slaves. Well, they come out of Egypt. They now have to do their thinking for themselves, and God instructs them in how to do so. By the way, the book of Leviticus today is highly relevant to some African cultures that have recently come to Jesus Christ, and they're dealing with some of the same issues there, especially in chapter 19. And it helps them to provide to their people and new converts a discipleship manual. They grow as disciples as a result of looking at the book of Leviticus. Then, uh, number five, Leviticus promotes laws everyone needs. Look at chapter 19, verses 11 through 18. Chapter 19, verses 11 through 18. He begins there in verse number 11 of chapter 19. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of the Lord. I am uh, your God, I am your Lord. You shall not cheat your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of him who's hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor, 
You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. Ladies and gentlemen, God just solved all the moral problems in the whole wide world through all the centuries right there with that short text. There are laws in the book of Leviticus, no matter how loudly the atheist and agnostic scorns the book of Leviticus, there are laws here that we do not want to live without in our current world, or especially in the ancient world. Uh, Number next, number six, Leviticus makes sense. There are prohibitions to certain kinds of food in chapter 11 and chapter number 18 that a microbiologist would look at and say, well, that makes good sense. There's a prohibition on Israel, for example, of eating shellfish. Do you know that without processing, modern processing techniques, shellfish are nasty critters? You would have no business in the ancient world eating these nasty critters. They are nasty full of parasites and all sorts of ocean garbage. It's just awful what they are. Now, they're delicious today, but that's only because of modern uh, technology and the ability to cleanse them and make use of them. But in the ancient day, can you imagine, an ancient Israelite hundreds of miles away from the Mediterranean Sea picking up two or three pounds of shrimp and more, let's say 100 pounds, let's say a pound for every Israelite, Two million pounds. And he hauls it to the desert and has got to process it and prepare it and serve it. Well, by the time you get there, it is spoiled. And so what we're saying is it makes a lot of sense not to eat shellfish in that day. Laws in Leviticus are just like that. Number seven, Leviticus assumes sinners ruin in sin and offers them grace. The big assumption in the book of Leviticus is that we're in sin and we are ruined and we are undone by our guilt before God. Yet God comes through and offers a way by blood sacrifice for us to reach Him and walk in grace forever and forever. Charles Spurgeon put it this way when writing about the book of Leviticus. He said, if we would have Christ as our atonement, we must come to Him confessing our sin. Our grasp of Jesus must be the grasp of one who is consciously guilty. He only belongs to us if we are sinners. Jesus Christ and the gospel of grace is not for the person who believes he or she is righteous. It's for the person, and Jesus calls the person who is convinced that he or she is in need because of their guilt and their sin. So rivers of blood run through Leviticus because rivers of depravity and guilt run through the human heart, and God meets the need through blood sacrifice. So instead of being austere and instead of being remote and irrelevant, Leviticus is one of the most relevant books a human could ever read. Number next, number eight, Leviticus previews the gospel of Christ, and it does this in several ways. It uses offerings. 187 mentions of them. Sacrifices, 42 mentions of those. Priests, 200 mention of them. Feasts, seven of those. Vocabulary, blood, 87 times. Atonement, 45 times. Leviticus is a gospel document, and the author of Hebrews takes off from that and writes 13 chapters of New Testament application of the book of Leviticus to the life of the New Testament Christian. 
It is a gospel document. And then number nine, Leviticus anticipates Jesus' priestly work, his mediatorial work for his people, how he intercedes for us. He, he pleads our case before the Father, and the Father responds favorably to the people of God because of what Jesus does. He ever lives to make intercession for us. And then his offering of himself is the ultimate sacrifice. And then finally, number 10. And before I state this, let me ask you something. Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you've ever read the book of Leviticus. Okay. Admit, uh, let, let, raise your hand if you will admit that it was somewhat challenging and maybe a little confusing. Okay. Uh, raise your hand, now be honest with me, if you ran into a non-Christian who had no idea about the Christian faith, it'd be the first Bible book you gave them. That's because it's challenging. It is uh, somewhat obscure. It is uh, a bit um, remote from us. Here's the point I want to make, number 10. The book of Leviticus is a very strong argument that the biblical faith comes from God and not humans. That the biblical faith originated with God. That the Bible itself originated with God. Do you know why? Because if we had invented the faith, we would not have included the book of Leviticus. We would have left it out. We would have made the Bible so much more palatable and satisfying, and from our perspective, more relevant to the world. We would have spent chapter after chapter after chapter talking about love, talking about peace, talking about relationships, talking about something that we think that the ordinary person would um, relate to. And so the fact that you have books like Leviticus, the first two chapters of Genesis, chapters in the gospel that shout loudly the resurrection of Christ, all the blood chapters and the book of Revelation, I think are a very strong argument that the biblical faith comes from heaven and does not come from men. What a remarkable, remarkable thing we've got before us. And by the way, that argument's not original with me. I think uh, C.S. Lewis argued that uh, originally. Well, Leviticus has two uh, large sections, chapters 1 to 17 and chapters 18 to 27. 1 to 17 are the longest, and they uh, address God's laws for Israel's way to God, laws governing Israel's way to God. There are in chapters 1 through 7 offerings. And there are five basic offerings, and they all point to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Everything from Jesus substituted at the cross to the peace he offers with God to so many other elements of the gospel of Christ. And so when ancient Jewish Christians read Leviticus, they saw a marvelous preview, a trailer, if you can, if you will, of Jesus Christ and his work and his person. Now, what you find explained in the book of Hebrews about these offerings is that the non-Christian religions require the worshiper to go through an effort to collect or to create his own offering and to bring it to God. In the New Testament, with Christianity, it's not the worshiper bringing his offering to God for his sins. In the New Testament, it's God bringing his offering of Jesus for the sins of the world. So God ends up giving the offering himself, coming up with the offering of himself for sinners in 
the world. What good news. And I don't know what kind of guilt you're dealing with tonight. I don't know what kind of insecurity in your walk with God that you're dealing with tonight. But I want to assure you there is enough love and grace and eagerness in God tonight as we meet here this evening to cancel and eliminate every bit of your guilt, every bit of your worry, every fret, every burden, because God has offered the perfect sacrifice of Himself in our place, and things can always be right with God if we come by faith. Is that not good news? Well, that's what the offerings lead us to. And so it's not irrelevant at all. Well, then we go on to the priest in chapters 8 through 10. Here Moses consecrates Aaron, his sons, and the priest of the priesthood. There's an ordination that takes place. And they in turn commence the sacrificial system. But Aaron's sons deviate from this in chapter 10. And they offer what is called strange fire before God. It doesn't say much more about it than that. But it is a deviation from God's way uh, of his approach to himself. And as a result, you have one of the most horrible passages in the entire Bible. And that is, God eliminates and takes the lives of Aaron's sons for offering an alternative fire before God. Ladies and gentlemen, let's make it clear. And let's make it plain. And let's make it straight. God is not excited. In fact, God is intolerant of alternative approaches to salvation and His ways. Now, He's very patient with us in this day. We don't find people and liberal preachers and heretical preachers keeling over immediately. But I've got to say to you, that is a preview of what takes place before the judgment bar of God. Never, ever entertain any preacher or any teacher who deviates from the Word of God. Uh, Aaron's sons did. And uh, in the distance, I can hear them saying, y'all avoid that. Letter C, people, chapter 11 through chapter 15. This section lays down laws for, the, for food and animals to consume and what to do with skin infections and mildew and uh, bodily discharges. What is remarkable to me in these chapters is the extent to which God is willing to reach into people's lives. In other words, God's the kind of God that expects to control these areas of life. God is the kind of God that is not bashful about claiming these areas of life. He wants people to deal with these things in a certain way, and he's not bashful about announcing it. He's not hesitant. He doesn't say, well, that's none of my business. Oh, it is his business. And I think that underscores the universal extent of the lordship of Almighty God. God wants to rule it all. George W. Truett said, Jesus Christ is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And then the nation, chapter 16 and 17, describes the Day of Atonement, which has become known as Yom Kippur. There are preparations of the priests, there's preparation of the ceremonies and the sacrifices, instructions on how to conduct them and how to institute this as an annual event in the life of Israel. The Day of Atonement was significant in the life of Israel, happened every year, and it was what was taking place the day Jesus was crucified. In one place, they were offering the Paschal Lamb in the temple, and there on Calvary's Mount, God was offering His own sacrifice on the altar of Calvary. Well, that is the way to God, chapters 1 through 17. But then there are laws governing Israel's walk with God. 
And I want you to notice the order here. First, in chapters 1 through 17, Israel gains access to God. Israel is able to connect with the living God. Israel is able to have its sins covered. Israel is able to know the love of God. Israel is able to see the extent to which God is willing to forgive in the blood laid upon and spilled upon the altar. So we begin with grace. We begin with love. We begin with mercy. We begin with divine supply and divine provision. And then, and only then, after that is established, does God come with obligations? Does God come with responsibilities? Does God come with expectations of His people? And dear, sweet people, you need to understand, every religion in the world can be put in one of these two categories. There are some religions that put chapter 18 through 27 first in an approach to God. And only when you satisfy chapter 18 to 27, the obligations, can you have any hope, maybe some hope, of experiencing chapters 1 through 17. There are some who say you've got to meet the expectations of God and then God will love you. God will give you grace. God will give you mercy. Or some undefined deity or some force will smile upon you and give you favor. Meet the demands and you get the favor, hope, and grace. That happens to be just about every religion in the world and so much of the Christian faith. But God comes along and says, oh no, it's not obligation first and grace second. It is grace first and obligation second. I'm going to give you a platform. I'm going to give you grace. I'm going to give you a firm place to stand with me. I'm going to give my favor to you. I'm going to, I'm going to shed the love of God through the Holy Spirit abroad and wide in your heart. And then you can walk with me in obedience. And so it's not behave and God will love you. It's that God loves you. Now behave. That's how God puts together his system. And we've got to be really, really careful, especially with kids, that we communicate to them that God doesn't merely love good boys and girls. God loves everyone. God loves the successful. God loves the prisoner. God loves the honorable. God loves the villain. God loves us when we're good, good. God loves us when we're bad. God loves us when we're up. God loves us when we're down. God loves us when we're in. God loves us when we're out. God loves us. And from that platform of love and grace and mercy and favor, God says, now you've got all that you need to obey me and meet the obligations and let me walk with you as you go every step of your journey. Mm. Aren't you glad to know Jesus? Boy, it's good. Well, that's the order here. Well, And look at the extent to which he uh, lays out these obligations. Chapter 17, animals. I don't know of any religion in the world that teaches its adherents, its adherents how to treat their livestock, how to treat their animals. I don't know anyone else that does that, but this God does. And then how to relate to the surrounding pagan culture, chapter 18 through 20. These laws here distinguish Israel's behavior from the surrounding cultures. They do sexuality different. They do relationships different. They handle justice issues different. And then uh, chapter 21 to 22, there's the priesthood. 
There are some expectations of priests. There are ways and standards that they meet. They're not perfect, so they have to offer a sacrifice first for their own sin, which is what the final high priest never had to do. Jesus Christ never had to do that. He was without sin, according to Hebrews 4, 14, and 15. And then there's worship, chapter 23 through chapter 24. And there you have the festivals that Israel observed on an annual basis. They would all take a week off of work and observe six of these festivals. They had six week-long revival meetings during the year. And that ended up being the model that many early American Christians and churches used uh, for their own revival meetings. These um, feasts preview Christ crucified as a blood sacrifice for sinners. Christ raised from the dead. Christ's Spirit coming to dwell with believers the festival of Pentecost, and Christ's return in glory, the festival of trumpets. In fact, the last three feasts that are mentioned there in verses 23 through 44. And so God says, we are ruined. Here's temporary provision, but I'm always pointing you to Jesus. Keep looking. The Messiah is coming. Well, then there's some years that they've got to observe and have to be careful with. There's the sabbatical year, which took place every seven years in Israel. And then there's the year of Jubilee. In chapter 25, the sabbatical year was a year whenever they gave all their farmland a rest. They were not to plant. They were not to harvest the seventh year. They were to let it lay fallow there and then pick up in the eighth year and plow again. And that's what they were to do. They were to rest the land and trust God to provide for them in the sixth year enough to carry them through the seventh year. Now, Israel did not do that. In fact, they did not do that for 490 years. They did not obey. They did not obey the year of uh, the Sabbath year. They kept plowing every year, year by year. They were not obedient for 490 years. They missed 70 sabbatical years. And so how long were they exiled? into Babylon. Seventy years. The Babylonian invasion endured for 70 years because Israel, over 490 years, missed 70 of those years. That was the sabbatical year. There's a lot of wisdom in that. I don't think it's necessary in this day with modern uh, technology, and God's not transferred those laws to us. By the way, let me chase a rabbit real quick. There may be some who say, well, you Christians, you just cherry pick which laws you're going to obey. I mean, you like John chapter 3, but you don't really pay much attention to this chapter in, uh, or this book of Leviticus. Why, why do you look at John? Why do you look at Romans and 1 Corinthians, but you don't obey Leviticus? Uh, why are you cherry-picking laws? And my reply is, why are you cherry-picking the laws of the United Kingdom? Oh, yes, you are. You're cherry-picking the laws of the United Kingdom if I'm cherry-picking these laws. I mean, why aren't you driving on the left side of the road? Why are you not loyal to the queen? Well, you know what your reply is. Those laws are not given to me. Exactly. Those laws weren't given to me. The moral law was transferred into the New Testament, but, but the ceremonial laws were not. Those were never transferred uh, to me. What God was doing in Israel is creating a missionary base, and once the gospel came about, that was no longer necessary. When the Spirit came and the church was launched, it was more important to God for us to be missionary than Jewish. 
And so we don't obey the Levitical laws for the same reason others don't obey all the laws of the United Kingdom. All right. Well, I'm glad you asked. Then there's the future, chapter 26. Here, God gives promises for obedience and threats for disobedience. In other words, we have a choice to make. We can shape the future with our choices. I can tell you precisely what your future will be like. If you obey God, God is going to come through and He's going to bless you mightily. You'll never be saved by obedience, but you sure will be enhanced and you will be enlarged and you will be remarkably blessed by God. But if you choose disobedience, it's going to go rough. It's going to be very difficult. In other words, you can predict the future on the basis of chapter number 26. And then finally, there's some vows here. Laws governing vows and gifts and tithes appear in this chapter. Let me ask you, are you familiar with the name Elijah McCoy? Do you know the name Elijah McCoy? You've probably heard it, you just don't remember it. In the 19th century, he escaped slavery in the Underground Railroad. He got an education and became an engineer. And one, is, one of his remarkable inventions was a, a, a lubricating ring for steam locomotives. It automatically would lubricate the engine of a steam locomotive. That made the productivity of the locomotive that much greater. It uh, helped it, and uh, its uh, productivity and its endurance and these kind of things were far greater because of Elijah McCoy's invention of this lubricating ring. So Elijah McCoy was celebrated. News of that spread throughout the railroad industry, Elijah McCoy's invention. In fact, people saw such an economic opportunity there, they began to invent cheap knockoffs uh, as an alternative to Elijah McCoy's lubricating ring. Well, these knockoffs became known. Some of the locomotive engines had some difficulty with these knockoff lubricating rings uh, when they bought those instead of Elijah McCoy's lubricating ring, that when they went to shop for a lubricating ring, they would come to the merchant uh, or to the supplier, and they would say, I want the real McCoy. Elijah McCoy's lubricating ring. That's where the real McCoy comes from. Beloved, I want to say to you, you do not have to walk. You do not have to walk in any fear. You do not have to walk into slavery over the fear of death or the guilt of your sin. There is a real salvation offered by God through the shed blood of His ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ, and you can have the real McCoy. What great news for you, your family, your neighborhood, our world. God is offering the real thing. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for the good news of the word and how we bless you and thank you for the book of Leviticus.